Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, podcast lovers. Welcome along to episode 169 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring big Aussie quick Mitchell Star. Now, Mitch is not your stereotypical fast bowler. No, 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 no. He is not your brooding, aggressive, in-your-face type of dude. Sure, Mitch gives it absolutely everything out on the ground. He will steam in, serve up some short stuff, hand out the odd stare, but it's more smiles and good vibes from Starkey. When not on the ground, from my experience, he is the most gentle, warm, smiley, friendly, professional athlete I reckon I've ever met. True story. On the morning of a test match, no matter whether Mitch has taken a fifer or none for without fail, without fail, the big boy will make an effort to come and say hello, ask how the kids are, talk about how things are going in commentary. He's always interested. He has a great interview himself and takes a massive, a massive amount of delight in giving it to his teammates as much as he can when they are being interviewed. He will pull their strides down, throw ice at them, stand off camera doing all sorts of stuff to put them off. Basically, the big man is a huge, goofy, jokester type of operator. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Now Mitch has had times in his incredibly successful career where he has been pretty much unplayable. Dawood Milan could attest to that in the Australia-England One Day International Series. Got in! It's an absolute ripper for Mitch Stark. Mitch has also had times where his radar is scrambled and things do not go so well. He's copped his fair share of criticism, which we discuss. We also talk about his unlikely path to becoming a bowler. The big man was set, true story, to become the world's tallest wiki. This episode was recorded in September 2022, prior to the World Cup, when the big fella had a very rare few days at home. Now, just before we get going with Starkey, I'm about to sidetrack you with a story from left field. It's a good story, I reckon, but nevertheless, if you do not wish to get sidetracked, skip forward three and a half, four minutes, and you'll get straight to Mitch. You can skip. Now, hey, I'm glad you're still with me. I'm glad you didn't skip. So, this little story I was telling you about. It is now approaching the holiday season here in Australia. I hope 2022 has been a wonderful year for you, as it has been for me and my loved ones. But as the years go by, maybe it's because I'm getting older, the world seems to focus these days more on the negatives. The media, of which I'm obviously a part, seems to prefer the negative story quite often to the positive story. Division within our community is highlighted more and more. Whether we are divided by political factions, by religion, by race, by colour, by sexual preference, division, can't be good for anyone. I'm not here to lecture you. I'm not here to stand up on some high moral ground. I'm just here to tell you a very short story that is the opposite of all this. It shows you how unified a country we can be when people care. So during the recent Cricket World Cup, I was picked up at an airport by a fellow who was born in Sri Lanka, but emigrated to Australia with basically nothing, nothing. So when you arrived here, yep. you did not speak a word of English and you, well, you had a thousand bucks? 1,200. Wow. Yep. With my wife. Alrighty. So just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Imagine taking your family to Sri Lanka, 
to live, knowing no one with 1200 bucks to your name. Daunting, I would have thought so. Frightening, most likely. Gutsy, absolutely. This fella and his wife were met by a family friend when they arrived in Australia, a family friend four times removed because they knew no one, not a soul. And he received us uh, from City Railway Station. We catch a train from the airport to here. Did you know anything about Australia? No, nothing. And uh, oh. so, yeah, from there he took us home after two weeks. I applied for the home. And uh, then I called my father, uh, find out in two weeks what, what, what else we need. So I borrowed money from him and um, had a place on rent. And uh, yeah, so that's how I started. Times were now obviously getting desperate, money running out, knowing hardly anyone and not speaking any English at this stage. This story now takes a wonderful, wonderful turn as our friend goes door to door looking for a job. And when I walk in, I see him here, I just smile, say hello, and I ask him for a pen. And he looked at me for twice. What a guy was, why he need a pen for? <laughs> and I, I grabbed, there was a... You know the, the PO box letters? Yeah. There was a letter on the on his table. I, I grabbed that and write on back of that letter there. So what did you write? I need work and I need work urgently. These are the four or five words I have written now. And you wrote it because you couldn't speak English at that point? Yes, yes. And he gave you a job on the spot? On the spot, yes. So a stranger gave another stranger a job. Bang. Just like that, it set a man and his wife on a new path. He sit down, first he drank a cup of coffee, uh, tea with me, and then he had to go, he tell me, um, just with hands, gesture, clean this floor, so I put the stuff away, broom it, mop it, and then when he came back, he took me outside, put the gurney on, and he said, can you wash these two ewes? He just started the gurney, and I'd done it. And what did he pay you on your first day? 350. 350, and you only had 1200 DNA? Wow. Yes, yes, $350. When he, that's why I'm saying when I'm walking home, that day when you're nearly on the edge of money, everything, you might fall or you might, you know, stand up and and do something alive. That was that moment. As the great Paul Kelly sang, from little things, big things grow. And life is now good for you? Yes, right. So I own this business. I have seven of these vehicles. You've got seven of these Mercedes? Yes. Yes. Four E-Class and three V250 vans. That's a lot of hard work. <laughs> it's, I worked, I worked very hard for. But we are two partners. Wow. Well, good on you, mate. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. So there's a little story for you about offering a helping hand, about community, about unity, and about what a wonderful, wonderful country we live in. Take from that what you will. Okay, sidetrack over. Back to the show. Enjoy the story of Mitchell Aaron Stark, a man that is the personification of the old adage, good things come to good people. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. 
Welcome to the Howie Games. A man with 287 test match wickets and counting, 206 one-day international wickets and counting, 63 T20 international wickets and counting. He is a star. He's a left-armer. He bowls with heat. And he is seriously the nicest person you could ever hope to meet. Welcome to the Howie Games, the big boy from New South Wales, Mitchell Stark. Starky, how are you? Howie, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Big fan, first time uh, caller. So, um, no, very much appreciate having me on. It fills me with joy that you occasionally listen to this little podcast. Good on you, Guru. When do you typically listen to it? Yeah, big fan. Um, yeah, we've got two, two pups, so um, if I'm walking them by myself, I always probably throw, throw an episode on. Um, it takes me about an hour to get to to cricket New South Wales, so it's um, it's always it's always easy, the little two-part series, one part A on the way and part B on the way home. So, And what type of guests are you into? Do you stick to the cricket guests or you have enough of cricket and you move into other areas? What floats your boat, Starkey? Uh, I do listen to some of the cricket ones as well, but... Um, you're a you're a big time podcast these days, so you've got all walks of life. And um, but no, I thoroughly enjoy um, hearing other people's stories and how they go about things. Not just in obviously just not in sport. You got um, you know a whole range of um, people on there, and, and it's just I like listening to their stories and, and whether it's a mindset thing or how they they came into where they are now. It's, it's always a a nice little uh, walk or drive listening to those stories. Did you learn anything from your wife's episode? <laughs> yeah. I learned. I yeah. think actually the main thing I learned from your wife's episode, she had three beers the night before the World Cup finals out and about. That was my main takeaway from your wife. <laughs> I'm not actually sure when I found that out, but um, <laughs> I, I did know that before the podcast and I got in from South Africa quite late that day. So um, I definitely wasn't a part of the beer drinking or the feeding of the beers, so I'll take no part in ownership of that. Hey, mate, it's great to see you. I mentioned at the start um, I've been privileged enough to be involved in broadcasting the test matches for nearly five years now and even more privileged to get out on the ground and speak to you and your teammates in the opposition before the game, which I love. It's my favourite part of any job I do. And you are the warmest, friendliest, most low-key, soft, gentle man that I've ever met in cricket. Is that a fair description of you? I don't mean soft, soft, but you are just, you're a very gentle man. Oh, thank you. I, I very much take that as a compliment, I guess. Um, you should. Yeah, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not a loud person, I don't think. Um, try and get around with a smile on my face and, you know, say hello to everyone and, I get to play cricket. Jeez, life's not that tough, is it? Well, so, um, well, you're, you're, no, it's... you're right, and that, that is you. you. You you are warm, friendly, always got a smile on your face. So I always wonder this about you because I, I can speak to you 25 minutes before the first test of the summer, and you'll explain your run up or have a chat or tell me what you're trying to do that day, and it's like you're the big friendly giant. <laughs> and then I see you at the top of your mark. And you have to be the big, bad, fast bowler. How do you do that? Because traditional, traditionally fast bowlers are the big, fast enforcers. They're the hard men. They're the angry men. They're the tough men. But that is the opposite of your personality from my experiences. Um, it's a good question. I guess it's not necessarily knowing when to turn it on and off. It's, it's I mean, we're all highly competitive. I certainly am. Mm. Um, not just on a cricket field. It's, you know, I was 
very competitive this morning when I played golf against the wife. So, how'd um, you go? I got the chocolates today. Okay. It, it was, I'm not sure it was a great display of golf from either of us, <laughs> but um, got the win today. But um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, I've been I've been around a long time now in cricket, so I've it, it probably not always been that way. I've probably gotten a little bit little bit more comfortable in myself and and knowing my role and where I stand in the team and. And, and I guess my preparation and my routines as well. But, um, yeah, once uh, for me, once I step over that over the boundary and, and go to work, as I guess you could say, um, yeah, it's, it's just being able to switch on and, and be able to, to do my role for the team as best I can. So that is being competitive. That's, that's just me naturally, but that, that is getting into the contest Um I mean, I don't really ruffle feathers too much these days. It's more just trying to go about my business and, and try and bowl fast and, and intimidate a little bit in that res- regard rather than verbally or up, up in someone's face and something like that. So um, that's, uh, I think, come in time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we get to play cricket and, um, yeah, it's just being a bit more comfortable and knowing my role, I guess. Your wife also very competitive. So when you beat your wife <laughs> at a game of golf, how do you handle that in your relationship on course and then on the drive home? Do you start getting lippy? Is it separate cars? <laughs> how do you juggle competitiveness and a happy life and wife? Yeah, we're both extremely competitive. Um, considering we both play for a trophy on the golf course, that would probably <laughs> sum it up uh, in one line. But Has the trophy got a name? Yeah, it's on the shelf here behind me somewhere. It's called the Steely Cup. So um, <laughs> we've been playing competitive golf, well, proper golf, I guess, for um, maybe eight eight or so years when we joined up at Long Reef up on the Northern Beaches. Yep. Um, both got handicaps and then thought we'd, we'd start playing competition golf. Um, <laughs> and then one day we'd watch a lot of golf, big fans of golf, love playing golf, and we were having a few beers in the clubhouse and thought we'd better come up with a – you know, uh, rather than just going, okay, you won today, I won yesterday, whatever. Oh, we, let's come up with some point system or something or other. So, oh, I'm surprised you're still married, but continue. <laughs> it's healthy. <laughs> um, so we came up with, with a couple of beers to, to work it all out, and we we came up with some some points for for playing games at home. So Long Reef and, and Terry Hills where we play our golf. So they were home fixtures. Yep. Um, then we had away fixtures in Australia. So we we obviously get to to play a bit of golf while we're on tour or, or time off or what, whatever. It's, uh, there's beautiful courses around Australia. and So they were away fixtures and they'd be worth, you know, a bit more. So they were 75 points for a win. And then obviously we get to tour around the world a fair bit. So we take our clubs a lot. So we'd have international fixtures. So they were worth 100 <laughs> points. And it'd be, a, it'd be a calendar year thing and, and it didn't matter how many games of golf you played. You just tally up the points at, on December 31st and the loser had to publicly or, or at home or whether wherever we may be, you had to present the, the trophy to the to the winner. So you have to really you, you really rub it in if you win then. They have to present oh, the absolutely. cup. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd hate, I actually think that I came up with that pit because I've only won once in about six years. So, right. <laughs> um, But it, it, it resembles the claret jug and, and uh, sits right in the middle of the, the trophy cabinet. So it's, um, it's highly competitive and I definitely lose more than I win. Uh, um, I love that. You're at home at the moment. You could be in India. So as we're recording this, it's the week of the AFL Grand Final. So this will come out later. Australia has just beaten India in a T20 match. Cameron Green's opened the batting and dominated. Do you watch that? 
Do you, do you sit there and watch the game of cricket or do you come back and look at highlights? And what's it like watching your team when you're not playing in your team, your team being Australia, Starkey? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. I, I find it hard to watch um, when I could be playing or should be playing. Um, been through a few injuries over the years and I'm, I'm not a great watcher because um, I, I particularly when I feel like I can be contributing or should be contributing on a, contributing on a field. So, um yeah, in that regard, I'll probably watch, a high, watch the highlights from last night and, and um, we'll flick it over from time to time, but I'm definitely not a good watcher. And when you are watching the cricket, here's a question that relates directly <laughs> to what I do. When you're watching the cricket at home or in, in, uh, in the sheds during a test match, is, is it sound up or sound down? How, how does this work? <laughs> um, at home, it's sound on. Um, right. Elisa's a very much a... A cricket watcher. So uh, if she's got the remote, it's generally on cricket. If it's if there's some sort of cricket on in the world, she'll have a look. Okay. So I'll sit there and watch and let it be. Um, yeah, in the change room, it varies. I think um, sometimes it's sound on. Sometimes we, we sit there and just talk rubbish. I think more than anything, or talk about the game, or um, sometimes sit in silence. So yeah, it's. At times, it depends who's on. Right. Um, depends who's who's in the change room. Okay. If if we've just lost a wicket and the the batsman comes in, the sound definitely goes off. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> um, there's been times, depending on where we are watching from, um, somewhere like the MCG, which is quite a large change room, and there's a there's a lot of li- little nooks and crannies in that in that dressing shed. Um, we've been known to sit back in that that back meeting room with the lights off, with the telly on, with the, the sound on. Right. Um, just to chill out a bit uh, away from upstairs where it's quite loud um, and sometimes away from the batters too, which is nice. Um, yeah, so it varies with, with all those different things. But um, And, and there's, so, there, there, there's so much commentary on your game, especially especially with two networks now, with Fox Cricket, with Seven, and there's all the radio stations. Uh, do, do you guys sit there and... Critique the commentators. Like, do you say, oh, what would old mate know? Or, you know, he's spot on there. Or actually that's a really good point. Or that's way off the mark. Or does it just flow over you? I'm not asking you to name names. I'm just fascinated. No, you're right. I think sometimes we definitely do. Um, Whether it is to – you might pick up a little gem there or something about the game or something, you know, there's plenty of – Plenty of commentators that, along with yourself, who've watched a lot of cricket. Some guys have played played themselves a lot of cricket. Some of the greats of, of cricket around the world. So, to to sometimes hear how they perceive a, a stage of the game, or whether it be a moment that's happened in the day's play or in the fixture, that that can always be a good thing. Um, there's probably a few guys that critique along the way. We certainly did in, in the uh, the series we just had up in in North Queensland. Um, Nathan Lyon was was one of the commentators. So how do you think he went? How do you think he went on Yeah, we turned it up a few times <laughs> to see see what what rubbish he was talking. And he's a nervous operator in the commentary box. I've sat there with him a couple of times. He's edgy. <laughs> he, I don't I think he's he quite fully relaxed yet. He's good, <laughs> but he's just a bit edgy, I reckon. Yeah, I, I probably tend to agree. And and I think his safe place is probably his own experiences in the change room, or whether yep. it's talking about Smithy's superstitions, or yep. That's his, that's his comfort zone. So whether he starts to open up, the more he does it or um, gets a bit more comfortable, 
the more he does it. We'll, we'll wait to wait and see. But at the moment, it's good. It's a good level of banter that we can can stick on him as well. <laughs> we mentioned the fact that you could be in India. Uh, you're, you're having a spell at the moment. Uh, I, I don't know if you can tell me off the top of my head in an in an average calendar year. I don't think like when the cricket season comes around. Um, I fare well my wife and kids and come home occasionally and and I find it really demanding, Starkey, and I only have to get on planes and talk about the game and it only runs for sort of three months in my world and then we finish and all of a sudden I turn on the TV and you're in India or you're in South Africa. Like over your career, I won't hold you to it, how many days a year do you reckon you're away from home? (laughs) Uh, a lot is the short answer. And people will be shocked. People will be shocked by the number. Yeah, I, I couldn't honestly couldn't tell you a, a number. Um, it, it, it is a large part of the reason that I, I don't play a lot of IPL. It's cricket nowadays as a three-format player is if you don't play the IPL, it's it's 10 months of the year. It, it's very close to 10 months of the year. Um, and now that we're, we're on the back end of, of COVID bubbles and restrictions and whatnot. The the schedule is is jam packed. Yeah. We we finished the, the north the North Queensland tour, came home for two and a half days where we had two full days of content. Uh, that whether that be um, you know promos for the summer, um, filming for different sponsors and whatnot, and then the next day the guys got on a plane to India. Yep, they're there for ten days, come home for maybe four, and then we're back up in Queensland getting ready for. For a series against the West Indies, and that's that's just purely the uh, a four week period. So, I mean, we it, it's definitely a decision of ours. We get to play cricket. It's it's yep. um, we're very fortunate to do that, but it is it is uh, taxing at times where you, especially guys with kids and uh, and everyone's got a got family and, and partners and and um, friends that they you know you don't see birthdays and, and whatnot. Um, some some guys go long periods of time without seeing their kids, and it, it can be tough. That that being said, we're we're very fortunate that we we're, we're very lucky that we can have families and, and kids on tour um, pretty much at the drop of a hat. Um, obviously, depending on where we are in the world and and the commitments of of kids and partners as well. Um, as you'd know, being you know getting around Australia and the world yourself, yeah, uh, it it can take its toll, and um, I think that's where. That's where the relationships are part of the in the group or in the touring party um, are very important, and I think that's that's a great position that the group is in at the minute, where everyone is. It's is a lot of smiles, there's a lot of time spent together. Um, I think at the minute, guys just know if if you need a little little pick me up or a, a question to see if your mate's going okay, or because it, it can be tough some days, and you never know what's going on at home. Um, but yeah, that's the nature of the world of the men, isn't it? Yeah, it is. No, I, you know, I, I think talking to your former coach, you know, I, I, you're probably away. You're probably not in your bed for at least 250 days a year. You're probably in, you know, even more than that. So I'll speak about the mental side of the game as we get there, Starkey. But, but how have you dealt? And how have you? I spoke to Mitch Marsh about this. How have you learnt to deal with it? You've had a day of a Test match where, I don't know, you've got smacked. You haven't bowled well. You've got home to a hotel. You're on the other side of the world from your friends and family. How have you mentally learned to work your way through that? Because I can only imagine that is really difficult. So for anyone else, you've had a shocking day at work. You want to be surrounded by your friends and family and you can't be. Um, And you might not be in a position to go to your hotel because you might be mobbed. How how have you dealt with that, mate? The honest answer is at times not very well. What does not very well mean in your world? 
Um, I think not just in cricket but in a lot of things. I keep a lot of things in and I probably bottle a lot of things, which is probably not overly healthy. Um, yeah. At the same time, I'm very fortunate that that I've got a wife who who has been through it all herself and, and um, you know, plays and tours just as much as we do these days. So it's um, it's easy to pick up the phone and, and chat in that regard. Um, I also get to play cricket with, with three of my closest mates. So those things help a lot. Um, as I said before, the group's in a in a really a really great place at the minute where I think it's it's not just one or two guys that you, you confide in. It's it's a whole group uh, of players and staff that are really close. And I think the COVID bubbles and whatnot have done that. Yeah. It's it's helped us get a lot closer. But yeah, I mean, uh, the older older you get, the more experience you get. You find outlets and you find ways to to let things go. Um, and you know, everyone's going to have a bad day along the way. I've certainly had more, probably more bad than good. Um, and you get to you get to learn that you got to enjoy the the journey, good and bad, for for what it is, and and almost use it as a, a bit of a, a learning um, to not not go about it the next day, I guess. So, yeah, it's definitely something that I've learned along the way, and and whether it's just to completely let it go or. Um, have a chat to someone or, or try it, you know, whether it's just go to the team room and hit golf balls in the net or something. It's just, mm. yeah, it, it can change from time to time, wherever you are in the world, different tours, depending on how bad your day is. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's just, you know, sit, lock myself in the room, have a have some food in the room and, and put a movie on or, or something to, to just try and switch off. So sometimes it's, it, you do it better than others, but, yeah. What's your room service go to? <laughs> Like I know what mine is. What's yours Ooh. after a day? Well, in the, this day and age, there's plenty of Uber Eats and, and yes. stuff in most most of the tours. Um, I, I do have a sweet tooth, so it's it's sometimes a bit of a, a dessert in there. Um, the burger's an easy one. So most hotels have got a burger. Couple fries? No fries. Def- oh, yeah, definitely. Bowling. <laughs> uh, bowling day is definitely fries. Right. And what type of dessert? Are we a bit of ice cream or what are you going for? Creme brulee? Oh, it's hard for me to say no to ice cream. Um, <laughs> can smack it full tub at times. If there's no freezer in the hotel fridge, you can't waste it, can you? <laughs> you, so. can't. you can't. <laughs> Next up on the Howie Games, the first Aussie to ever win the Indy 500, two-time IndyCar champion, Will Power. Now, this is an episode I hope you listen to. Whether you're into motor racing or not, it is an episode about striving, about pushing, about grinding, and eventually succeeding. It is also a story about overcoming all sorts of things. I'd never liked the pack racing super speedway stuff, so you're starting to question whether you even want to do this. It's a tough situation because, on one hand, at that point, I was the quickest guy in the series, had great chances to win a lot of races and championships, and uh, I was driving for the best team and getting paid good money for me at that time was, you know, as a young guy, it was amazing. And on the other hand, you were aware that, yep, every four years someone's killed, every year someone's seriously injured. That Those are the stats right now. I did them in my head. You look back, it's just simply every four years someone was killed and, you know, about every four years and then every year someone was seriously injured, whether it's broken pelvis, broken back, severe concussion, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, it was it was getting into the car, getting in the car on any of those ovals and, and just wondering, you know, my wife would say it like, 
when I'd hug her before I get in the car, it's just like, yep, you, you could, she could tell I was thinking, <laughs> thinking like this might be the last time I'm, I'm alive. I'll get in the car thinking that. Like, well, I'm getting in, I'm doing it. This might be the last time. This might be the last time I'm alive. That was the mindset. It was crazy. But I actually thought that I still do. I still know that. You still have to battle with that, getting in the car. Um, and uh, it never gets easier, that horrid, sick feeling. But you get it and uh, you shut it out. Very good at shutting that out. And you do your job to the best of your ability. That is Will Power next up on the show. Let's get back to Mitch. Hey, before we go back to the start of your journey, you mentioned the IPL, and as you said, I don't think you've played there for – you played a couple of seasons. Um, yeah. You know, your first contract was – I was reading it was near on $900,000. Um, so that, and I, I'm only saying that it's public knowledge just to give people of an idea of the financial – gains that Mitch could have playing IPL and the money has gone up a lot more since seven years ago. You, you haven't played in it for seven years, a couple of times through injury, but other times because you needed a spell from the game. How do you juggle the fact that you could be earning $2 million in eight weeks? Like people say, oh, if they want to rest these blokes while they go to the IPL, well, I, I put it to anyone, you're going to get $2 million. <laughs> you know, people are going to do just about anything for that. How how have you justified it in your own mind and with your accountant, et cetera, to give up? <laughs> you know, I, I was reading an article saying since Mitchell Stark's been out of the IPL, it's probably cost him between 12 and 14 million dollars. Now, that, that's an extraordinary amount of money. Um, and I don't know if you've tallied that up and I don't know if you're looking a bit paler now over the Zoom. But but how have you dealt with that, mate? Because you you, you have said no time and time again. Yeah, I have. And, and um, it, it's, I guess it probably go through a bit of a process now. And it, I have been, I went in, uh, played for Bangalore in 2014 and 15. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was it was great. I got to play with Sherry Changer with Vera Coley, A.B. De Villiers, Chris Gale, Yuvraj Singh. Wow. Who else? Um, it was great. Look, it was it was a fantastic experience. Um, one I definitely love to have again. Um, at the same time, I, I hold playing for Australia a lot higher. Um, and being a three format player, being a bowler. Um, Wanting to to look after my body, um, that that's what I dreamed of doing as a kid was playing for Australia, and I don't want to compromise that at all. Um, the other side of it, which is also very very important to me, is is having that time with with family and and having juggling one schedule is very hard. Juggling two cricket schedules is is sometimes impossible. Um, and for Elisa and I, that's that's generally our only time away from cricket together uh, through a season. There's a lot of time where I'll finish a tour and, and if I want to see her, I'll go on her tour and, mm-hmm. and still be at cricket. Likewise, she'll come into whether it be Boxing Day or, or somewhere in the world and it's, it's still cricket. So that's that's our time away. Um, it's our, our few weeks to switch off together and, and be away from cricket. So, yeah, the money the money's there and it, it's, um, it's a large amount. Uh, money's not everything and I... I I understand I sit from a very um, privileged position yep. of, a, of a Cricket Australia contract and it's it's a bit easier for me to, to do that. Um, but, yeah, for, for me that's that's more important to me is having time um, with Elisa and the family away from cricket and likewise 
protecting my body so I can be at my best for as much of much cricket for Australia as I can. Do you have concerns for the games? As we're doing this, I read last week that um, you mentioned you get to play with your three great mates, um, Paddy Cummins, Josh Hazelwood and Nathan Lyon, and I read that Neil Maxwell, Paddy's manager, said he was being approached by domestic competitions in India for a million bucks for a short period of time to appear. Do you, do you worry about um, the 10-year-olds now and how they're going to go approaching this money versus country debate that we've seen take charge of probably international soccer and European soccer for the last 40 and 50 years and the fact that, you know, the, the Aussie boys not might not be able to play for the Socceroos because they have to play for Celtic or for Liverpool? It's it's very interesting. We're, we're sitting in a very interesting juncture in yeah, cricket. we are. Um, certainly in that regard. Um, at the same time, I'll, I'll never begrudge anyone for for going to the IPL because it is a lot of money and no. people sit in different situations and, and people play for different reasons. And it's not for me to say that's right or wrong. I'll make the decision purely on on my circumstance and how I feel about it. So I'll never begrudge anyone going. I, I have a little bit of a, a worry when it interferes with international stuff, whether it interferes with, with Australian duty for some guys or whatever. That's, that's a different, different kettle of fish. But, yeah, it's a very interesting stage because you're seeing – you're seeing more franchise cricket open up around the world. You're seeing certain franchises buy into these different leagues as a as an overarching um, uh, boss, if you like, where where one group will own several teams across different leagues. So you might have a team now, we've seen a team in the IPL, a team in the new South African comp, and you've got the team in, in the new Dubai UAE, comp. Yeah, yep, and then you've got 100%. your Caribbean team as well. So, I, I you know... They're, they're, you can see easily they're all of a sudden in five years' time, X player is drafted and he plays for Kolkata in five different tournaments around the world. Yeah, and then all of a sudden we could be sitting here in a few years' time or, or maybe longer, who knows, where league cricket is where it's at and then there's an international window, which is yeah. essentially what, what football has at the minute, right? Absolutely, mate, so, yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't go down that path. Um for me, Test cricket's still the pinnacle. The the number one sits on the top of everything for me. But who knows? The, the next generation may not aspire to do that. They may see the path to millions and millions of dollars by playing franchise cricket. Who knows? Um, for me, it's still about playing as much Test cricket. So um, that's what I dreamed of as a kid, to wear the burger green and, and hopefully – the next generation, generations that come, still still harbour that aspiration, but uh, I'm not sure with how it's all it's all going to pan out. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You, you mentioned um, you as a kid. Let's go back. So, where'd you grow up, and where did cricket enter your life? I love the stories <laughs> about the first bat and the the backyard. We'll get to that, but but well, you know, where'd you grow up, and what's your first memories of cricket, either watching or playing, Starkey? I always struggle talking about myself, so um, we'll see how we go. Um, yeah, I grew up in in the inner west in Sydney, so in Lidcombe, and I'm the oldest of of four uh, and now with a, with a stepbrother as well who's 16. Um, yeah, I think it's not a memory but I, I, I know the photo. Mum, mum's very sentimental with the photo albums and whatnot. Um, there's a photo of me as I think a two-year-old with a cricket bat in the backyard <laughs> um, trying to hit a ball. So that's um, the memory of that photo, I guess, is is the first memory of cricket. Uh, tried everything as a kid at, at First organised cricket was Have A Go, which is now 
Woolworths Blast, I think. Yeah, I went to Milo and then Woolworths Blast. I think yeah. you're right. I think so you're it was right. Milo have a go at cricket when I was yep. when I was a little kid. Um, then moved into under tens cricket as a six year old, which was you bat in pairs. You batted for two overs. Everyone had a bowl. It was very much a get into cricket. Everyone got a, a bat, a bowl, and a keep. And who was that playing just for? The participation thing. So Barella Sports was the club at the time, which um, don't exist anymore, but. They were just down the road from Lidcombe. Um, Dad was heavily involved in the club. He was secretary for as long as I can remember. He was a coach of, of all my junior cricket. So right through from under 10s to 15s or whatever it was, it was um, we always had too many kids for one team, not enough for two. Um, so I was in the, always in the team with sort of eight or nine players and we had the odd sibling fill in from time to time. So Brandon filled in from time to time, which was very much below his age group. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if that hindered his love of cricket or not. He had a, a bit of a crack in his own age group uh, and then found athletics. So good decision by him because he's gone under bigger and better things in, in athletics, um, not so much in cricket. So, yeah, played for, for Barala up till 16s, played rep cricket in amongst that. Yeah. So played from, I can't remember if it was Causey Shield or Creek Shield was the first one, which was sort of under 10s, right through to 15s for Northern Districts um, and then on to Greenshield for Western Suburbs, Grey Cricket for West and then um, fortunately got a, a nice pathway through through to New South Wales and, and now Australia. So there's a few pathways in there to talk about. What's your first, what, uh, what can you remember being your first bat? Um, I remember having a V100. Oh. Like a Mark War type operation yep, with the the red V, yeah, the V one hundred. Was that a Christmas that a- present or a trip to the sports store? I'm I'm feeling like it was a Christmas present. Yeah, normally um, is normally is. Yes, yeah, we're talking a bit bit of time back now, but um, and was so it was a V one hundred, and then the other one I remember was the the Kookaburra sword. Ooh, nice, yeah, nice the Kookaburra sword. And when you um, were in the backyard, who did you want to be? Well, bear in mind as a kid, I was trying to hit the ball as far as I could. Um, didn't bowl too much. Uh, and lo and behold, as a, through junior cricket, there weren't too many kids who wanted to, to wicket keep. So I was more than happy to. And so I was a keeper up until about 14 or 15. You're a wiki. Yeah, oh, I didn't bowl much. No, I just tried to I tried to smack them like Gilly um, or, or Steve Wall, whichever I felt like at the time. Were, you, then, t- were, you, t- um, were you a tall wiki or you hadn't grown at that point? <laughs> well, I believe my wife on her podcast she that did. I was a different shape. She did. Um, she said you're she a, a slightly more rotund style of customer yeah, stuff. She she finds a lot of humour in that one. Uh <laughs> yeah, I wasn't I wasn't um overly tall, I was a bit wider. Um Unfortunately, over the years, I've stretched out, so I'm a bit taller and a bit, a bit leaner. <laughs> so, so you, you're keeping, you want to be Steve or a Gilly. Tell me about the backyard setup. Did you play backyard cricket at your place or at a mate's? Um, I love these stories. I remember Payne saying that him and Wade used to play on the road together. Um, Greg Chappell talked about, I think it was a, a, um, a, a an axe that Ian Chappell chased him with. So I like the, I like the backyard stories. What was it for you? Yeah, it was a bit of, bit of uh, backyard cricket. So we had a bit of a... A bit of a yard. There was a, a, a big tree at the back. We had a, a shed to the, the right-hand side and a veggie garden next to it. Mm. So a bit of a narrow patch of grass which wind out towards the house. Um, so the veggie veggie garden obviously was you got in there, you're out. 
Um, you can be one end off the shed. <laughs> Obviously, there's six and out. But so if you, you we hit toward back towards the house, and the way that the roof was with, and then it had a bit of a, a corrugated iron, um, uh, like flattened out. So obviously rolled down, it slowed down off the roof. And if you could guess it right, obviously one hand off the roof as well. <laughs> uh, there were a few windows broken, so there wasn't, you know, from time to time we had to pick and choose our battles in the backyard. Um, but we lived in a cul-de-sac, so, um, and at the, at the end of the cul-de-sac was a couple of industrial factories. They weren't overly busy, they weren't overly large, but they had a couple of car parks. And a few of the kids at the end of the street I went to school with, so of a weekend when obviously no one was in work at, at work at the end in the in the factories, we go to the car park and, and set up a couple of milk crates hmm. and tennis balls. Um, and we'd hit a lot of balls onto the roof of these buildings and Dad had this big ladder. So, you know, <laughs> maybe once a month he'd get up there and come down with 50 tennis balls or something like that. So, And whenever it was dinner time, he'd, he'd whistle from 20 houses up and we'd jump on the box and get home for dinner. So... Um, they were our two venues as, as kids. Um, obviously, I was I was the eldest, but um, Brandon was a bit younger, and then uh, a few of the kids at the end of the street we all went to school with at Lidcombe. So it was um, a few a few good battles up there. And when do you make the transition from being a wiki that was trying to smack it out of the park? Like, who says, mate, you should have start having a bit more of a bowl? Yeah, it was. Uh Turned out a good decision, did it? Very but, um, good decision. Although you could have been <laughs> yeah. the greatest wicketkeeper batsman we've ever seen. We don't know this, Starkey. Oh, don't know about that. A bit, a bit too tall, a bit hard on the knees maybe. But <laughs> um, it was probably through Northern District stuff. Um, so Elisa and I shared keeping for a few years and it was 60 over cricket, I think, at that stage. So we'd sort of do half and half. How old were you when you met you two? I should have gone back and listened to her episode. How old were you? <laughs> we It was the under... 10s Northern Districts that we we bumped into each other for the first time and down to Cheltenham Oval and she was playing for Carlingford, I was at Barilla and somehow we were both in Northern Districts. So um, we both were kept. Uh, so we we pretty much go half and half. So it was 30 overs each. Um, <laughs> one of the other kids was the coach for the first couple of years. Then a few years later, my dad took over. We still shared the keeping and then we had another another young guy come in one year who was also a keeper. So it was almost like we did for a little bit, we did 20 overs each. Um, and then I, I must have been third best, so I found myself out of the keeping job. Wow. And I think I actually bowled like left arm leggies or something for a little bit, like tried something. I certainly wasn't a seam bowler and still tried to hit him like Gilly. And then <laughs> Elisa's dad took over when she went off to women's cricket, which was about under 14s or 15s, but she'd fill in from time to time and, and really um, show us boys up because there was a few times we played some big kids and none of us wanted it because he was a big fast bowler and she'd go out and take him on. Wow. So it was no surprise that she found herself in the breakers at a young age. Um, but but Greg, her dad, um, kept coaching the, the rep team till our last year, which was under 15s, I think, and then it wasn't until... I was trying for these Green Shield teams, which was the transition between junior cricket and grade cricket. It was that sort of step in between for young guys around grade cricket clubs uh, to get them into to grade cricket and that step in too. So trialled for, tri- for Parramatta, UTS Balmain at the time and Wes. And so didn't get picked by Parra, didn't get picked by Balmain. 
I remember being at Wes and it was the obligatory trial session where everyone had a bat and a bowl and they came up with some sort of squad from it. Anyway, I'm, I'm there going, yeah, I'm, I'm here as a weed keeper. And coach at the time was pretty much going, well, no, you're not. Look at the size of you. Go and have a bowl. <laughs> I never bowled seven of mid. Well, I probably tried in the nets or at school or something like that, but I was like, yeah, righto, I'll have a go. Um, didn't get picked, but I, I got told, come come along as the train-on squad and come come along for the winter. And it was down at Kingsgrove Indoor Centre. And I remember the first session, Neil, the coach, basically put me in the far net by myself with a bucket of balls and said, righto, Bowl off one step. So I bowled every ball in the bucket off one step. So you go pick them up, do it again. That was it for the one, the first session I had. That was it. Bowl off one step in the back net. Came back the next session, right out three steps. Did that again and again. Right out five steps. And then came up with some sort of a natural runner and bowling action from that. And then played the following year um, in the, the West Greenshield side. And then that was it. Sort of came up with some bowling action through through this coaching, and and um, and I think it was around that same time where I, I was trialling for the under 17s for New South Wales. And for some reason, some Trent Woodhill was the coach for the under 17s, who is, um, gets around the BBL circuit now and, and the hundred over in England. So he must have seen something. I don't know what um, decided to pick me in that team, uh, along with Joshy Hazelwood and. Um, yeah, from there I was a bowler, I guess. So where is that the first time you met Josh? It was. So I, I certainly wouldn't have been known by anyone, um, but Josh was this big country kid who everyone had heard of. Right. Um, he was a big quick down from the country, was he? He was, he was the big dog. He he played under 15s, 13s, whatever it was. He was um, he was well known around the traps, the young, the underage crap. It was, it was emerging blues we had sort of. Uh, as kids, um, which was sort of to get you in the pathway system from rep cricket onto uh, sort of in the the underage state system. So I, n- I never got picked for any of that. Mum tells, I don't remember it, but mum tells a story that I back then they let you know by by mail. So no, we haven't picked you this time. Um, mum reckons that I stuck it up on the pin board one day because I didn't get picked, and I was like, I don't remember it, but. She keeps telling the story of it, so... Um, so you use that as motivation because you, you didn't get picked? Maybe. So at what age did you start to think that this wicketkeeper that had been bowling off a step could actually play cricket for a career? Like at what stage did you realise... And I know you're a really modest man, but at what stage did you realise I'm actually pretty good at this and I'm starting to do really well? Oh, jeez, I don't know. I would have been 20 tests in before I thought I was any good. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, without taking the mickey. I, well, that, that's yeah. typical you. That's what I was trying to explain at the start. Such, <laughs> such a quiet, humble man in many ways. So you didn't um, – like what were you going to do then if you weren't going to be playing cricket? Yeah, I left, I left school taking the option of studying a sports science degree with the vision of then going on to physiotherapy. Right. So I, I got a rookie deal out of, out of high school. So I finished in 07 um, – Got offered a, a, a rookie contract, which was I think it was ten grand for the year. Um, I had a an old Ford Festiva, which I think was made the same year I was born. Had about two hundred fifty thousand k's on the <laughs> on the speedo, and I was chewing on my knees every time I drove it. But and that back in those days, it was the rookies were only only had to be at like one or two sessions a week, 
you could beat as many as you wanted, but you only had to be there for for one or two. Um, so I was I was doing a sports science degree at it at UWS, trying to get, I was going to as many training sessions as I could because he had all these big guys. He had Stuart Clark, Michael Clark, Cadditch, Haddon, McGill, all the the big guys, guys I've watched on TV, and they were in part of the squad. Why wouldn't you go to every session? Mm-hmm. So I was doing. I was going to uni, going out out Campbelltown, training at the SCG, and then I'd. Worked at at that stage. I was working at West Ashfield Leagues Club, right. so I was pulling beers and paying out poker machines. <laughs> and then I go home to uh, at that stage we were living at Borkham Hills. Geez, you're doing some K's. Yeah, the, the little Ford Festiva had a few extra K's on that, but um, <laughs> yeah. So I was doing a round trip every day, and and yeah, wasn't sleeping too much. But um, I, I honestly at that stage I, I didn't think it was a proper chance of a career, so I was still trying to study and. Earn some cash to put in the, put some petrol in the car, and then at the same time try and learn how to bowl a cricket ball. Well, you, you must have learnt because it, like things move pretty quickly. Um, played a one day international, uh, your first versus India <laughs> over there, yep. but then came back and got a uh, played against Sri Lanka and got some wickets. See a lot of this boy. He is talented. Uh, someone tried to tell me yesterday that they didn't know if it was urban legend or not, and we'll get to Richie Benno on the cat presentation, <laughs> but that you sat next to the great man on a plane after the Sri Lanka game. True story or not? No, true story. I actually missed the flight. Oh. Um, so I missed my original flight, and um, I can't remember if I had to book my own or got the next one or whatever. Um, but Elise is a big believer of everything happens for a reason, and, and so have I since I sort of met her. Um, anyway, I get aboard this plane, and I'm... Sit down, I'm sitting next to Richie. Wow. And I was, wow. this? Flight from Brisbane to Sydney, sitting next to the great man. Um, bloody great flight to miss. So got to sit next to him, um, have a bit of a chat and a bit of a yarn. And, and then, um, yeah, lo and behold, I'm not that long later, he's actually presenting my baggy green to me, which was bloody cool. That is the end of Mitchell Stark Part A. The second innings awaits on Part B.